Welcome to the Practice Purchased Podcast, where you'll learn everything you need to know to buy the perfect dental practice, all for free, and all in less than 20 minutes an episode. Learn more about your host, author, presenter, and coach to hundreds of successful dental practice buyers by visiting brianhanks.com. Welcome to Practice Purchase Podcast, Season 1, Episode 18. We're talking due diligence today, and especially how and when to complete your due diligence. I'm your host, Brian Hanks. Thanks for listening. And, you know, the topic of due diligence, this is going to be, the two words that I thought about for this episode were tricky and controversial. <laughs> now, the, the topic of due diligence itself isn't controversial, uh, but there are a few controversial elements of due diligence that get a little tricky at times. And I want to give you a heads up. There's a few areas that are definitely my opinion that others have different opinions on that as you go through this, uh, that you don't uh, necessarily think this is the only way to do due diligence. Okay. Uh, But I'll talk about the non-controversial stuff. Our outline for this episode is pretty basic. Uh, We're going to talk about due diligence in uh, three different forms. Now, the first form is just simply asking questions that you didn't get answered in the upfront analysis. Um, well, I'll tell, talk about what that is. Um, the second flavor of due diligence we're going to talk about is um, the in-person due diligence I want you to do in the practice, and then financial due diligence and what the bank and your accountant should be doing, okay? So be strategic as you listen to this. Take some notes. There are lots of, of resources, including some on my website, brianhanks.com, to get due diligence checklists. What I want you to listen to for in this episode specifically are some of the principles that will help you to uh, get comfortable that what you think you're buying is actually what the seller has told you that they're selling, okay? So let's talk about the first flavor of due diligence. It's a very, very simple uh, set of, of questions to get answered, and that is just to fill in some gaps in your initial analysis. I've never, in the hundreds of practice purchase analyses that I've done as the buyer's rep, buyer's accountant, I've never once, not once, <laughs> gotten every question answered in the upfront analysis. Uh, no matter what documents are provided, how detailed and how um, you know prolific all of the paperwork that you get are, there's always going to be a question or two or sometimes 17 that just isn't answered in those initial documents. Or if you're working with um, a certain style of broker, they're going to pr- purposefully not give them to you and like let you or let they're going to make you submit a letter of intent before they'll give you access to some of the basic information that you need to get a sense of what it is you're actually buying. And I'm talking the most common areas I see here would be things like um, production reports, specific uh, numbers around ADA codes, how many 2740s are done in a year, uh, any specialty procedures done, how many and how much money was associated with those. Um, I often see, uh, you know, accounts receivable and patient credits are, are typically areas where we have some questions, but aren't necessarily provided in upfront information. Um, a basic level or basic first pass at due diligence would just be to simply, you know, submit the letter of intent, get it accepted, go get banking, go hire the lawyer, and then get some of these questions answered now. Okay. You told me that restorative was 40% of, of the amount of production being done. Now can I see the production report that shows that, yeah, it is actually 40%, and can I see the actual ADA codes that prove that? Okay, so that's the first flavor. The second flavor we're going to talk about 
um, is financial due diligence. Financial due diligence, of course, is what your bank and your accountant are going to do. And your accountant is probably do, helping you do some of the uh, report, uh, looking at the reports to make sure that they're covered well, uh, get fill in gaps in knowledge. Um, but your bank is really digging into some of the legal aspects and um, they're going to be doing things like matching tax returns to profit and loss statements or vice versa. They'll actually go straight to the IRS and they will get the actual tax returns that were filed and make sure that they match the tax returns that were provided in initial documentation. They'll do things like match pay stubs to tax returns and W-2s and make sure that um, what is reported to the IRS is actually what got paid to actual employees. Um, your bank, your accountant will request things like an accounts receivable aging report to see how well collections are, are handled at the front desk and how efficiently and how much the accounts receivable may end up costing you. They'll also ask for a patient credit report. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it, that is money that the office owes to patients. A lot of times it's as simple as a, uh, a copay that ended up being a little lower than was predicted up front. But in some cases, it could be significant dollars, especially over a 20 or 30 year career. If a dentist hasn't cleaned out patient credits from the system in a decade, sometimes that number can be pretty significant. So it'd be good to check those. Uh, your bank is also going to do background checks on, on individuals involved in the loan, seller and you. They'll do a LexisNexis search, which is a public record search of anything related to the business entity or the seller or you. They'll do UCC searches. They'll look for tax liens and liabilities. They'll do a professional license search. They'll search business entity names. They'll look at fictitious business name, uh, and they have searches for that. And then my personal favorite, my favorite due diligence tool that I always do with the buyer right when we start an engagement is just simply to type the seller's name into Google. I have been shocked on at least a dozen occasions of what I will find as the top Google result for a seller's name. I found all kinds of fun things. <laughs> um, open investigations, open lawsuits, um, OSHA violations, HIPAA violations, and and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you are in the in the transaction, it's all available in Google. Uh, so don't forget to use that as a tool for yourself. Now let's take a second and let's talk about the third flavor of due diligence, the in-practice due diligence, okay? This is the due diligence that you're going to do as you walk physically through the practice. And a lot of times, and in most cases, the seller is there with you in the practice and you as the buyer are handling this solo, okay? You can, there are, there are some consultants that will do this with you, but I've found that most buyers feel comfortable enough in a dental office to be able to walk through and perform adequate due diligence with the help of a few uh, professionals that I'll, I'll recommend here in a minute. Here are some areas that I want you to focus on. And, and then I'll talk about the most important areas in my opinion. Okay, and the, the first area, of course, is take a look at the equipment. Make sure you feel comfortable with it. Right-handed, left-handed, some of the basics. Make sure that you know how to use it. I would also take a look at the schedule. The daily schedule can tell you a lot about the health of a practice, how efficiently they're scheduled. They told you hygiene was scheduled out four months. Is it really? Um, yeah, how much room is there for emergency patients? How often do patients reschedule? A daily schedule can tell you a lot about the business and 
what is healthy and maybe what is new information for you as a buyer. I would look at patient charts and I would look at a significant number of patient charts. And um, I'll talk about those in more detail here in just a second. I would also take a look at the interior and the exterior of the dental practice. So walk, take a walk around the outside of the building, um, you know, the, whatever it is that you're buying and how that building is set up, take a look through the eyes of a patient. What would a patient see as they walk up to the front doors for the first time? Um, and then walk through the interior. Poke around in the nooks and crannies that don't get opened and looked in very often. Are you comfortable with what you see? What, do you, what is it telling you as you walk through the practice? And how well is the office kept? This is you as the buyer showing up, seller knowing you're coming. And if you find things that surprise you, that could tell you about, um, you know, maybe how serious the buyer or the, excuse me, the seller is about uh, selling you a quality product. Um, some other topics to pay attention to would, of course, be new, new patient numbers and the marketing around those new patient numbers. How much marketing is being done? What type of marketing? How many new patients are coming in? How did they find the practice? How comfortable does the seller feel with the current marketing plan and how effective does he or she feel that it is? I would ask to see an employee handbook. If the seller doesn't have one, that tells you something. And how long ago the employee handbook was updated tells you something. What's included in the handbook, if there is one, can tell you a lot about a practice and the culture. And then similarly, I would talk to and, and find out as much as I can about the staff. So let me step back here for a second. I gave you some basic categories of things to look at. Um, I have a, a due diligence checklist that has a very prescriptive set of questions for each of those categories. You can get it on my website. And, um, but let me just talk for a minute about what I consider to be the two most important pieces of that due diligence. You pause for a second, think to yourself in that list. If you're in a dental practice, which two would be the most important to you? So I'm going to make the case that I think that you should pay the most attention to the patient charts and the staff. And the patient charts, I have a very, uh, very specific set of recommendations here for a buyer. I recommend that a, a buyer go in and pull at least 50 patient charts. That's a lot. It's a big number. Uh, but there's some, I have a, some thought behind that number. The first thought is think back to, if, if you took one, a basic statistics class. And in a basic statistics class, you learn that a sample size of 30 or more tends to be representative of most normal distribution or no, normal populations. So if you pull 50 patient charts, you're looking at a great enough sample size to get a feel for uh, what happens with a typical patient. And when you're looking at those patient charts, I want you to pay attention to two specific things. And I'm coming at this from an accounting perspective. Um, so, um, so there may be other things that you look for, uh, but the two that I consider to be most important would be obviously clinical fit, philosophical fit, right? Uh, if you pick up a patient chart, A, can you under follow and understand what's happening with this set of imaging and the, the treatment plan? And would you have done something similar enough that you feel comfortable as the buyer? Now, the second thing that I feel like is really important is to look for um, diagnosed, treatment planned, maybe even accepted, but not yet performed dentistry. Um, put differently and in plain English that I understand a little bit better, is there work left to do in the patient's mouths 
these active patients that you are ostensibly buying as the buyer. Okay. Is the, or has the seller had the same group of 1,500, 2,000 active patients and upon making the decision to sell the practice, have they gone through and done everything in, in every patient's mouth that they can possibly find to do? That's happened in a few transitions I've been involved in and it's a disaster for the buyer. They think that the most valuable thing that they're buying, those habits of the patients, the, the, um, the goodwill, those relationships with the patients, what they find out is and everything's in great shape. They're doing hygiene checks and they're sending people out the door and there's nothing left to do. And, and now they need to go out and find new patients because everything's been done. And, and so patient charts, in my mind, number one, most important. Number two, arguably more important would be the staff. And I would, and, and here's where the controversial section of this podcast is going to come in. As the buyer, I strongly recommend that you meet the staff before you buy the dental practice. Now, that can be very tricky to do in certain situations. If a broker is involved, there's a high likelihood that they bro- the broker will have told the seller that you can't meet the staff before you close the deal. And here's the thinking behind that approach. And it's not wrong. It's not illogical. Um, and, and the thinking goes something like this. Until money changes hands, something could derail this transition. And you, seller, don't want to be left holding the bag with an angry staff or a disappointed staff. And so as a result, we recommend you don't tell the staff until you actually close on the practice and you sell the practice. Okay, that's one way to handle the transition. And in, frankly, it's uh, the most popular way if you have brokers involved. In my opinion, though, it's selfish, it's unethical, and it is uh, incredibly difficult as the buyer to know whether or not the value of the goodwill that you're purchasing is what the seller has purported that it is, right? Because a lot of the goodwill is tied up in the knowledge in the staff's head, the processes, the relationships with the staff and all of those active patients that you are, are purchasing. Um, that staff is incredibly important to your success in the transition. And so, you know, put yourself in the shoes of the staff for a minute. What does it say about a seller and a seller's relationship with the staff if the seller is willing to go along with a broker who tells us who to and and keep a secret that big from the staff, a new boss, new regime change, potentially new processes and a new way of doing business. Um, you know, in my opinion, um, it, it, it's just not the best way to handle things. So here's what I recommend. What I don't recommend is that you go around the broker and flip them the bird and <laughs> do what you want to do anyway. I do, however, recommend that as you get closer to the transition point, right, you've um, signed a letter of intent, you've gotten approval from a bank, you have a lawyer hired and they're working on legal documents. You've seen an employee handbook. You've drafted, maybe you've drafted a, a letter to patients and you've started reviewing that. At that point, the chances that the deal fall through are very, very low. And so I think it's incredibly normal to ask a seller to go ahead and meet the staff, meet these people that are going to help create success for you as a buyer and uh, be able to allow you to 
be able to pay that practice loan back and, and create a living for your family and your significant other and, and help with your career. So, uh, like I said, a little controversial, but, you know, I most sellers, if pushed, will give a little bit in that area. And as they see that the transition is likely to happen, they are, are willing to work with you on that. Now, I mentioned the due diligence checklist. The due diligence checklist that uh, you can get out on the website is also one of the 13 tools that you get to keep as part of the course I created. It's uh, the practice purchase blueprint. You In the course, you get to see how to find practices, analyze practices. You get real examples, real spreadsheets, real maps. You get to see it all. You get to see me uh, analyze practices. And um, for you listening to this podcast, if you go to practicepurchaseblueprint.com and you use the, uh, the discount code podcast, you get $100 off uh, the purchase. And that's just my way of saying thank you for listening to the podcast. So I will just wrap up by recommending that you schedule two due diligence visits to the office. The first visit is going to be soon after you sign that LOI and you get the banking and the, the legal side going. Um, full access, if you can get it um, without the seller there, great. I would try to schedule that second visit closer to the closing date. And that's when I would ask to meet the staff. And I would be persistent. And if you need to, blame me. <laughs> Throw me under the bus. So I listened to this Brian guy. He said, I really need to meet the staff. However, each situation is different. Each, each situation is unique. Talk to your friends. Talk to your advisors. Talk to your accountant, your lawyer, and ask your mentors for help. And and to end the episode, maybe on not the, the most positive note, expect a little discomfort. It's normal to have some jitters as you get closer to your practice date, uh, but know the difference between some jitters and red flags. And in 99.9% of the due diligence practice cases that are out there, you're going to feel some jitters, but there won't be red flags. You're going to feel more comfortable. You're going to feel more prepared. And if you approach due diligence in a, a respectful way, um, everything will go very smooth for you. Thank you for listening to this episode. As always, if you found this free content helpful, I'd really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes um, or sent the, this podcast to a friend uh, because it really helps others find the show. Um, in episode 19, the next episode, I'll tell you the five things that must be done before closing day. Until then, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Practice Purchased Podcast. For more information about Brian's best-selling book, How to Buy a Dental Practice, or about the Practice Purchase Blueprint course, visit brianhanks.com.